everybody and welcome to Volume 5, Issue 241, Metropolis Street Racer. I'm your host for this episode, Cal Moon, and joining me on this endeavour is Tony Atkins. Hello! And uh, returning after a long time, Gary Blower. Hello! So... First up, here at Cane and Rinse, we create a free podcast. We put it out weekly. We also have a sister podcast in Sound of Play, and we do like to take these things rather seriously. Um, we run a number of articles and features and reviews on our forum and our Facebook page, uh, as well as news stories uh, regularly. And we also have a YouTube channel with playthroughs and you know, quick rinses, uh, if you ever want to check those out. We do all this for free, but we do have a Patreon if you wish to support us. Um, we will never hide stuff behind a paywall. Um, if we average just 50 pence per podcast download, we could actually afford to take Kane and Rinse on full-time as a professional concern with far more content and an even stronger output. Uh, that said, if you want something more for your money, we do actually do a range of clothing. Um, so if you want the best quality, funkiest-looking gear this Christmas, um, then you can drop by shop at spread, uh, shop.spreadshirt.co.uk forward slash Kane and Rinse and you can buy a bunch of goodies. Uh, one we've recently seen uh, is modelled regularly by Ivy Gargett, Darren's uh, daughter. It's a little baby bouncer and it looks utterly fantastic. Um, we all, I also mentioned our sister podcast, Sound of Play. Uh, we do this weekly. It's music from within the games industry with a range of guests. Uh, you should definitely check it out. Um, and as always, please remember you can review, rate and subscribe to both of our podcasts on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, Radio, TuneIn, wherever you can see it. And of course, you can just listen to it via our website. So this has been a long time coming. The Metropolis Street Racer podcast. Uh, first things first, we'll get on to our histories and how we came about playing it. First, Tony. Yeah, I um I was an early adopter. I, I broke this day one. Um, it was a little while after the launch of the Dreamcast, so it's uh, it was one that certainly pushed you know front and centre of the the media kind of push about how good the Dreamcast could be. And look at these uh, these graphics. And at the time, certainly um, Metropolis Street Racer was one where it, it really stood out from a crowd. Um, so certainly, yeah, day one. Um, my my history with it would be that I played this a lot. I can't remember when I saw it or how I saw it or whether it was an E3 or etc. Because um, it's a little while ago now. But I I do um, I do remember playing this a lot. And I've actually got a hundred percent completed save file. Um, I still have that save file as well on um, on a VM unit. Thank, <laughs> thank God. I actually didn't. I I thought it would have disappeared by now, but I dragged my old Dreamcast out along with the game, and and there it was, still there. So um, it would appear I put a lot of hours in, into the game. So um, yeah, um, yes, yeah, so that's really my my story. I put a lot of time into it, um, and it was right after launch because there was a you know not a huge amount of games out for the Dreamcast at that time. So it was the same kind of certainly excited for. Um, Gary, how did you come about it? So, um, I knew I had a Dreamcast. I, I got one quite early on. Um, I knew the game was coming out, but my first play of it was actually at the uh, mode, the International Motor Show at the NEC. Um, oh, yes. 2000, I guess. They had demo pods there, um, which were sort of tucked away down one of the sort of main thoroughfares into the uh, NEC hall that it was in there was nobody actually 
queuing for them or playing them. There were people walking past them. And as I walked past, I, I turned to my mate and said, look, there's Metropolis Street Racer. <laughs> you know, it's coming out soon. And um, I think it had the... Because I know at that motor show, it was when the Exige and the um, the Vauxhall, which is on the, the cover, yeah. the VX... Yeah, the, the VX220. VX, yeah, that one. Because um, <laughs> uh, that was there. That was there. They had a big presence. Cause I think that might, might have been the motor show where it was launched. Um, but... Uh, yeah, that basically that was all you could play on it, um, and I don't remember the track. I think it was a time. All it had on it was a time trial. I seem to remember, um, but I know me and my mates we uh, we stood there playing it for like twenty five thirty minutes, and it was like uh, the most amazing <laughs> racing game I'd ever played. Because I so you know played Gran Turismo and 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 and, and things like that, and and uh, it was it was a it was a revelation because obviously it was you know a third person arcade racer but it with realistic cars and a realistic setting and it just looked phenomenal um and of course so when it came out i was day one mm-hmm. i think it um i was doing a bit of research i remember f355 uh ferrari um came yes. out a couple of months before and i remember playing that a hell of a lot and being super impressed by that and then as soon as metropolis street racer came out that was it that was it for me yeah, I mean, it was obviously Sega were looking out for the one big racing game where they knew they needed a racing hit, and um, with F three five five being an incredibly sort of niche title, <laughs> yeah. well, it had one car and one track. <laughs> yeah, what a car! <laughs> and inc- incredibly <laughs> yeah. difficult I, car to handle. And it was well. a fantastic game, but yeah, it was no, it wasn't uh, MSR. That's for sure. So my history with coming into MSR is a little bit of an odd one, and it's it's one of these awkward stories that when it comes to reporting them on a podcast uh, it it's never the nicest because the first time i actually played it was a pirated copy <laughs> um i was at college at the time and i think it's safe to say i wasn't necessarily taking that year overly serious with my friend and, and we returned home one day and i, I guess someone had dropped the a disc version of it round so we just threw it in his dreamcast and we sort of played it for the best part of what half a day in his living room um and i it whilst it was a game i was anticipating it was very different to what i expected and i think that is a general concern with this game um it it was a wide criticism at the time that it wasn't the straight up racing game that perhaps it had been advertised as uh and this game did have a huge advertising presence as gary mentioned it was at the nec show it had a a large print-based ad campaign um it was aggressively pushed in gaming stores i mean as i mentioned sega really needed a driving game hit and they were hoping this would be the one and driving games were sort of really on the up with gran turismo and gran turismo Mm. 2 being sort of mega hits on the playstation and this really wanted to be their equivalent and you know between f355 sega gt and this I think this was the one with the with the real gaming pedigree, uh, with bizarre creations behind it. So the first time that I'd come about it was actually playing a pirated copy. I felt really bad about it and bought a legitimate copy some months later, sadly not you know the next day, which is what probably what it should have been, but me being a student um, and being incredibly tight, it wasn't. Um, the game, of course, was released in the year 2000, so it was a, roughly a year after the launch of the Dreamcast, um, slightly longer. It, the original anticipation was for it to be a launch title, um, but they were given a sort of a reprieve for pushing a game out, um, as this did have an incredibly troubled development cycle. 
uh, it does actually have a rather interesting story about how it came about, um, which is that Katsato, who was the managing director of, of Sega, um, re- again, knew he needed a title. He'd been given the task of finding out who was developing the F1 titles, which were obviously smash hits on the Sony PlayStation console. Um, so he travelled to the European Consumer Trade, so- Trade Show, or ECTS, where the game was being showcased and being in these you know, these demo pods where you can't really gain access to it or it's a very locked version, he decided to sneak around the back and actually unplug one of these units. Um, Plugged the power cable back in and upon boot up, realised that Bizarre Creations were the developer when the logo came on, noted it, uh, and then went to directly contact Bizarre Creations. Um, This is where they were pulled into a meeting with Kazutoshi Miyaki, who was the head of Sega Europe. Um, and the story goes that Bazaar walked into this large meeting room um, where there was a, a, a very large, stern man uh, with who put both his hands on the table and bellowed at them, with Formula One, you have done a great harm to Sega. And they were originally sort of a little bit taken aback, expecting sort of a, a real friendly meeting, in which case apparently the guy burst out into laughter and said, you know, he was only joking, but we, you know, we have a racing game. We want to go ahead and we want the developers of these Formula One games to, you know, take under development. And being excited by the next generation of consoles, Bizarre Creations sort of signed on and that, that was how it came about creating the MSR series. So it, from the Sony PlayStation to the Sega Dreamcast, um, which at the time were incredible rivals with the, you know, we were waiting for the PlayStation 2 to arrive uh, they decided to go and poach outside of Polyphony, probably the most prevalent racing game designer on the on the PlayStation. Um, so in into the sort of the finer details of of Metropolis Street Racer, um, as I mentioned, it was released in the year two thousand. It was November third, two thousand in Europe. It was actually released later in North America on January fifteenth, two thousand and one, on uh, exclusively to the Sega Dreamcast. We're under the executive producer, Kat Sato, with the developer being Bizarre Creations. Um, And in terms of sales, this is where people probably have a misunderstanding of MSR because there's almost this tale that it was actually a massive success. And in fact, it was an incredible commercial flop. It sold 120,000 units. 101,757 of those were sold in the United States with only 13,297 sold in Europe within the first two days. So that left 5,000 in the territory (laughs) (laughs) post-launch, which by today's figures is incredibly low. I mean, Um, mean, mean, those figures obviously are surprising when when you kind of look them down, written down on a piece of paper for sure. But then again, you've got to look at the the Dreamcast and Stoolbase it wasn't huge. It wasn't around long enough to be huge, but you know, it wasn't particularly huge. Certainly, a year in post-launch. Um, but that's, I mean, it's still a low figure. But you know, t- to your point of not feeling like it was a, a game that uh, felt small in stature, I know certainly when I was playing it, it felt like it was a really big 
big deal. Like it was a really big event. Uh, that game coming out on the Dreamcast it seemed to have a lot of um, you know page space, and we are talking at the time of magazines rather than the internet. Yeah, um, it had a lot of magazine space and front covers and excitement around it. And you know, I certainly was excited about getting it. Um, and it suddenly had that aura of being a, a very big release, not something that would would essentially go on to be you know a relatively you know I guess minor event in in the history. But I, I guess what you need to do is is put that against other Dreamcast yeah. game figures. I mean, it'd be interesting to see how it stacked up. Say something, you know, I've picked one out at the top of my head, like, <laughs> um, a Sonic game or you know, Virtual Tennis or Crazy yeah, Taxi I mean, or Obviously, Son- Sonic or, would have been you know, quite high. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, um, yeah, they they did all actually sell considerably more copies than this. Uh, I did actually do some research into the sales figures, and MSR does stand out as an incredibly low seller, even compared to several franchises that you would have expected to be smaller. And by by comparison, we mentioned those sales. It entered the UK Games Chart at fifth. Um, that was behind Command and Conquer Red Alert Two, FIFA Two Thousand and One, which unsurprising, Championship Manager Season. 2000 2001 and first in the charts that week was who wants to be a millionaire and that to, sold to be fair, that was a job in, the, in, copies, in that time period which was three times more than MSR. <laughs> it, it was a frightening little party game but you know msr entered fifth and anyone who was around to experience that time knew that the 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 juggernaut of a hype train for the playstation 2 was in full cool. flow yeah. at this point yeah, people was... were sort of jettisoning their Dreamcasts weren't there to, to fund these PlayStation three 2s. months away or something, wasn't it? It was like January, I think. January and February when it came out in Europe. I can't quite remember, but it was early the following year. So yeah, yeah. And then this was sort of one of the last real major releases for the Dreamcast. And of course, the intention was for it to be a launch game. It got delayed, and it almost certainly harmed it. Now, in terms of its development, even Martin Chudley, the uh, managing director of Bizarre Creations, described the sales as measly. Um, of course, citing the Sega Dreamcast's demise, uh, the late arrival, and the game did release with several high-profile bugs. Um, Bizarre Creations actually invested roughly £1 million of their own money into the project, so it wasn't entirely funded by Sega. Um there is an irony to the fact that that one million actually came from Sony for the Formula One franchise, which is one of the things that sort of makes me laugh. But they asked Sega about the possibility of releasing it on the PlayStation 2, which at this point, even before launch, was clear that the PlayStation 2 was going to be a bigger console. It was going to be a bigger deal on the market. Of course, Sega declined. Um, Edge magazine later described uh, in a preview for Project Gotham Racing that releasing MSR exclusively for Dreamcast was comparable to the Beatles exclusively selling the White Album on Mars. <laughs> so uh, whilst that's probably a bit extreme, there is some sort of relevance to that to that comment. It is It, it released a game that had a, uh, an incredibly talented team, a lot of hype behind it on a console that was you know, at death's door already, um, which is a shame. But of course, everyone knows MSR was the start of a much bigger legacy. But we're not here to talk about the legacy on this episode this is entirely about metropolis street racer so of course after being funded uh, and delayed and it had bugs it also went through uh, an e3 showing which i believe was the first time i'd actually heard of the franchise that, that it was actually coming through it was it was demoed at e3 and it was torn apart it was destroyed it was 
called all sorts of rubbish. Now, do any of you guys actually remember this? Because I, I do remember the talk around this that this was actually going to be a bomb for Sega. No, I think I only ever read the uh, the Edge preview because it was like a cover story on Edge. Yeah. Um, and I th- well, seem to I mean, remember that was e- quite glowing. E3 was somewhat of a different beast than it is now with the kind of the internet you know, culture. It was a lot more about you know the paper magazines and and getting word of mouth that way. Yeah. Um, so no, it, it wasn't something I was particularly like. Oh my god, this is happening in E3. I yeah, I, I actually do remember that edge issue, and I, I think I probably have that edge, edge issue still somewhere locked away in one of my cupboards. Um, <laughs> yeah, which is yeah. It's nice one, but yeah, it's. I mean, along with that, and obviously the issue of bugs, and once again, I don't like. Yeah, to 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 me, two thousand. It you know, in my headspace, it doesn't seem like that long ago. <laughs> but uh, obviously, we are getting further and further away from that that period. And you know, releasing a game with bugs you know, back then on a disc was was a really bad thing. You you weren't out there. What you know, unlike the PC market, you weren't there patching it. If if a game got released and made gold and, and put on a disc and had bugs, you know, it that could be a real death nail kill for your um, your title when that got around. You, you couldn't just fix that stuff. If you if your game broke and people got word of that, then they didn't really want to buy your game. It's you know, little stuff like that. And I I do believe they they did a number yeah. of reissues on the game, didn't they? They um yeah, I think that's it three in the end I read somewhere that they actually, you know, recalled a whole load of the games, um, scrapped them, repressed, put it back out there, and then they repressed that one as well. So um, you know, maybe they tried to do the right thing, but you know, that, that was a dangerous time to be to be messing with stuff you know, it's firmly printed onto a disc. I mean this this was obviously this isn't a new system. It was something that we'd experienced with the likes of the Amiga and the Spectrum where you would send back old copies that would send you a reprinted more modern version, but when this is your big final game and you're really hoping to keep your market share, it's it's absolutely critical um, that you get it right. And there were two reissues mm-hmm. almost within weeks of the game being released um, with, with critical flaws on there. Uh, it is stated as one of the major reasons that the game did suffer sort of at launch. Um, you know, going back to the original E3 showcase, now I was one that, I was fortunate enough to be on the internet quite regularly in the year 2000, reading any game sites that were available. Obviously, there was a lot less back then, but some of them were still you know, prevalent, and you, you would read these stories of people experiencing it at E3. And um, there are actually videos of uh, MSR, the original intention of MSR, uh, before it was... It was essentially a full rewrite. It was a back to the drawing board, and I think you'd be shocked at how it looked. Um, it's got far, far more in common with probably the looks of something like Burnout, the, f- the very first Burnout title, than it does what you'd ex- with MSR and PG, PGR. And that is that it was very bright and colourful. It was not a sense of realism, and the the camera was very um, it was very floaty around the car, and the handling was described as being something more akin to Wipeout, <laughs> which. For something that became a city racer around real licensed cars uh, w- was very different. Now, in the original demo, it was widely criticised for having a large fireworks show, low-flying fighter jets, and a squadron of balloons. Now, Sounds like Forza Horizon, yeah. <laughs> that may sound funny to anyone who plays the Forza Horizon games. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where it actually used all three of those, but at the time, it got criticised for how it you know, fell into the realm of realism and... It only takes a short look at that video to see why it was criticised. Now, 
just a week before showcasing this, the lead coder actually left Bizarre Creations. Um, shortly afterwards, one of the senior artists left to move back home away from Liverpool. Uh, and Martin Chudley just said that, you know, Sega thankfully had faith in the company that they would get it right and they decided that the quality of the game was more important than meeting the US and UK Dreamcast launch dates, um, especially as they'd already had an impressive background of racing titles. Um, and because they had the money to put into F1, that uh, from F1, they actually put it into MSR. So Martin Chudley stepped back into the programming role himself, something that he took on for the original Formula One title before moving further up into the company and, and watching over. Uh, he took design of the, uh, charge of the design, the structure and the programming, uh, along with Roger Perkins, a tools coder, on another Bizarre Creations project. And they decided that a total rework of the engine was, was needed. They, they said that we found that it wasn't flexible or robust enough to carry off the ambitions that we had. The first thing we did was increase the polygon counts of the cars and change the camera viewing angle to make it feel far more real and less like flying a wipeout spaceship. Immediately it became more like the MSR that hit the shelves. So from a disastrous E3 showing came possibly the wake-up call that the company needed and they headed down the direction of the realistic racer that we saw. Um, that wasn't where the problems ended and as I mentioned with my playthrough there was almost a lack of clarity over the intention and the way that you played the game. Up until this point racing games tended to be racing games whether they were the you know simulation style of Gran Turismo or the arcade racing style of Ridge Racer the goal was to start the race and win and this game came with a kudos system something that obviously carried on through the PGR series and I think it was perhaps the lack of clarity over what this kudos system was um, that led to sort of misunderstandings and criticisms in reviews and word of mouth. Uh, did you guys have any problems at all or any surprise at the fact that the kudos system was in there and, and how did it play positively or negatively in your original experience of playing it? I seem to remember it making the game very, very difficult, is <laughs> my abiding memory. <laughs> it's difficult because, of course, the PGR games that came after it, um, it kind of blur everything all into one because they took a lot of the stuff yeah. that was in this, and particularly PGR 1, which is basically MSR 1.2. Um, but I remember that, and I remember... Um, in the end, um, I would spend more time just doing hot laps and timed uh, time lapse uh, just for fun because trying to make any serious progress often resulted in frustration because uh, uh, I seem to remember you had to kind of almost grind you had to go back and do previous races and try and improve and previous, previous yeah. events and try and improve your kudos score and you'd only you know you do really well for say two laps and then you'd clatter into some cars or to some barriers or something and that would be that would be that would be it so uh yeah, they, I mean, you know, it's like all these things, you iterate on them over time and they, they get better and better. But I think it was a novel idea and it's something I do miss now, actually. I know yeah, some games attempt to do it or they give a nod and a wink to it. But there was something about the idea of it not quite being a simulator, but mm. being expected to drive stylishly, you know, to to look yeah. cool. Yeah. Uh, driving and that, that as an appeal, and like you said, the, the Forza yeah. Horizon games are kind um, of carry I don't that think mantle it was, now. It was not particularly well telegraphed for the player. I certainly do. 
because when you start up the game, the, the first opening cutscene essentially is it's all about the kudos driving stylishly that you know, they just kind of bombard you with it. And for a, the progression system of the game as well is very much locked behind. I mean, for instance, you can come first and it adds a certain amount of points to that kudos total. But equally, if you have a terrible race driving around the track, um, you can go finish the race with negative kudos. You can actually lose kudos off uh, off your points total, which is you know, I'm yeah, say terrible, but you know, it just goes to prove that you can't just you couldn't just barge your way through to the very front winner race. As most games at that point, I mean, I, I'll reference back to you know games that I was playing around that time, um, primarily Gran Turismo and. Um, Ridge Racer. Actually, I remember playing Rage Racer a hell of a lot around that time as well. Um, and that was very much about, yes, you know, you could yeah, do very well and, and avoid cars, but equally you could just grind around corners, smash off the side of the, you know, the first apex bend, get in the front and be very happy with your, uh, the fact you're probably going to come first once you've done that. So it was, it did take a little bit of, um, you know, retraining of the, yeah. of the mind to, to go, okay, well, yeah, it's, it's not about just winning. It's about, Let's face it, bashing the A button, handbraking around every single turn to try a bit of a little bit of kudos in there, um, trying to keep that momentum because, as always, if you if you kind of break that momentum, then it's harder to pull off. You know, you know more fancier twists and turns. I think the bigger problem, of course, is that you would always gamble with the kudos, and that is something that has been you know that has continued. I think through a lot of the games, even up to you know the latest Forza Horizon Three title. They, they put it in your skill chain, but essentially you can have a massive skill chain or a kudos, gamble it on a very corner because you, you know, your, your, your multiplier is up and then lose it all in one go and you feel like then you've, in, in well, I guess in MSR in particular, that was the whole crux of the game. And, um, and so you'd race if it'd almost be worth nothing in something like you know, Forza Horizon now. It's just, it's just an element of that game and you can kind of get frustrated, but it's okay, you just move on from it. So... Yeah, I don't think it was a lack of um, feedback to the player what they needed to do. I just think it was a complete change of style, and that's both a, a positive and a negative, right? It's you know, it's yeah. it's made the title stand out from the crowd. It, it wasn't just about well, from A to B, and you know, races are still very much about a lot of races anyway, about getting from um, you know from last to first as, as quick as possible and staying there. I think it was also a, a gameplay mechanism to. Um, move away from what mm-hmm. was happening with um, Gran Turismo. I mean, p- players worked out oh, pretty yes. quickly that <laughs> if you just smacked into the car in front on every bend, that it, you'd soon end up in first place, and then you could easily stay there. And it, you know, it really that isn't motorsport, and to some extent, that series still hasn't learned its lesson. But uh, you know, this was a kind of you can see that the thinking behind it. It's like okay, this introduced a gameplay mechanism which rewards the player mm-hmm. for not crashing into the other cars in order to gain an advantage you yeah. know actually penalize them for doing it and now other games have done it by like we talked about f355 um, i mean that basically yeah. did it or by a lot of games did it if you if you touch the gravel you'd come to a dead halt yeah drive club infamously when it first released did mm. did that uh, you know you touched mm. the car and you got like a three second penalty that was crazy but i mean they're all doing it for the same reasons and in many ways by doing it through a reward system was a much clever way of doing it because mm-hmm. ultimately when this was iterated on and perfected you could still approach it like you would Gran Turismo and crash your way to the front and finish but there was there is the 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 uh, the, the sweetener there that if you do do it 
well and you do do it stylishly and you do do it by properly drifting and overtaking and drafting then you'll get bonus points and you'll unlock yeah. even more stuff and that's that's what they were going for they just they've just misjudged i mean the problem is they i doubt given the the checkered development they play tested it a great deal um and probably internally they've mm. played the game so much they were well, probably quite good at it that that is 100 uh one of the, the major issues yeah. in msr is that it it got a bit too heavy on how much kudos you needed and certainly towards the back end of the game the the required amounts and and this is where it really held stuff behind so you weren't just you know, getting kudos to progress past tracks. You were getting kudos to actually unlock the next car that would essentially allow, allow you to then go on to the next set of tracks and whatnot. But you then would have to unlock the car and then get that car and then be- beat the kudos challenge that it set for that particular car. And it would have all these little barriers that you'd have to become very good at each individual little event and track. And actually what happened, a lot of people just couldn't beat the requirements that was set upon them so they'd actually come up against a brick wall halfway through the game yeah where as you said gary it was probably down to the fact that you know play, no playtest and you know people just becoming very good in, in their own studio but actually for the general joe public it become you know relatively difficult to to get past that halfway point of the game i mean i i remember staying up you know some very late nights just replaying you know literally replaying over and over again i don't think there was actually a restart mode so you just had to fail the challenge over and over and over again just to get through to the next set of um cars and tracks and stuff i mean yeah once again yeah that was me trying to do everything in the game something i, I still continue to do now but um yeah it's it's it was somewhat <laughs> misjudged but i really feel like it at the time it was a breath of fresh air. It was something that was entirely different from what was being fed as a norm. Um, it seemed like Gran Turismo was certainly on the console side pushing us down this need to be more sim like, need to be more sim like. And actually, yeah. I, I liked the Gran Turismo games at that point, really did. Um, but equally, I, I really liked um, my Ridge Racers, etc. Um, some of the more arcadey content, Daytona and all that kind of stuff. So this seemed to be the best of both worlds. It was blending a little bit of fun and. And, and lightness to my driving ability as well as kind of taking the or the actual core driving mechanic being super solid and feeling you know more Gran Turismo-esque than um, Ridge Racer-esque so it, it kind of blended those two elements really well together. Yeah absolutely and, and for anyone who's unaware of what the kudos system actually entails um, the introduction to the game actually describes it as we have created a new language a new way of thinking beyond your conscious ability it breathes style and precision it seeks ambition, and it will change the way you think about driving forever. It's not about how fast you drive, it's about how you drive fast. <laughs> Somewhat. Now, that sounds like a load of nonsense, the kind of rubbish that you would hear on the back end of a perfume advert on the television. Um, but it's somewhat true as, as the way the game goes, because I think the key element of it is it's about your conscious ability. Because once or at least playing outside of it, because what the first time you play it, if you're trying to play this as a standard racing game and suddenly you're failing these challenges and you can't understand and it's like I'm winning these races and you start to realise mm-hmm. that that real risk and reward process of of earning points for large drifts and you know drafting and weaving in between and out of cars and keeping the combinations going and, and so forth, that it becomes incredibly addictive. Um, the, the need to push your own scores further and further and then once you start you know, hitting hitting the challenges and going beyond, it becomes that unconscious style of play that, you know, that almost zen state that when you're playing and things are just happening and you're not focusing on it and you can just, you know, stare at the screen. That is 
something that really comes to the fore in in this game, and it's something that I would never really happened with Gran Turismo in the same regard because the goal was always to finish first. And whilst that game did have a differentiation with how you earn the driving licenses um, as its tiering system, and Ridge Racer always had its incredible drifts, that was just part of how you played. You could play this like a standard racing game, but you to get further, you really did have to play that risk and reward style and i, I think for uh, those that stuck with it or learned the system it became i think, I think probably the most charming element this is a little bit of rose tinted specs here because i think project gotham racing probably nailed the sentence that you just told me i don't think msr actually got that stuff nailed on right i mean I, i've gone back and I, i've played the game for probably about three hours um you know dragged my dreamcast out and got everything set up on a, a smaller tv etc and had a you know had a, a blast playing it but it's it is very you know, punitive in its punishment it's like the the, the controls um are quite tight so i i might what i mean by that is you know you, you obviously pull right on the, on the joystick to, to drift around a corner and you know the car jumps quite quite quickly across you know there, there's there's not a finesse to the controls that you probably in your in your mind's eye think there yeah. there is that and, that and that certainly was there in the project gotham series i you know i think that the the series developed and, and got more mature and, and more clever the way that you would handbrake turns around there you know the, the cars tend to to hit you and there tends to be a bit too much you know dead stopping and stuff like that so you know going back to the game that I mean, there's clear flaws of, of where they've you know progressed in the future I'm not going to say that that was the case when I was playing it back in 2000 because obviously you know you can judge anything quite easily now by what you've played since. But um, you know going back to it, I think you know that there was yeah. lessons that were learned from that first title, and it's probably not as smooth and as as clever as that kind of kudos system you talked about earlier portrayed it being. But it you know back in 2000 it, it was a you know, <laughs> yeah. an interesting take and a breath of fresh air and probably actually more importantly not too dissimilar control wise to something like Gran Turismo with a kind of a, a more interesting hook to it so you know yeah that's it's probably a bit unfair to to, to compare it to it, it's you know the, the games thereafter I think one of the issues that I had with the game that I found relatively off-putting leading up to it and this is incredibly superficial and I admit this right right away um as a huge fan of the Gran Turismo games which were heavily supported mm-hmm. by legitimate manufacturers and um, a high presence in sort of a a higher echelon of motorsport it was you know it was respected as a franchise was that this game released with as Gary mentioned earlier the Vauxhall VX220 on the front cover it always (laughs) you know you should (laughs) the the old cliche never judge a book by its cover but when when a game wants to come out and utilize a Vauxhall (laughs) To sell me it as this street guy, racing yeah. spot. Sorry, it's a good car all across Europe. Yeah, it, no, it was a good. It car. was a decent car, but it's a, it's a budget <laughs> Lotus. That, that's essentially it's a budget Lotus Elise. So, and that did have an impact on how I thought about the game, and whether or not that sort of lowered my estimations of what it would be to maybe benefit the title. Um, uh, MX Five as well. You you drove an MX-5 for about five hours in that game, um, yeah. Because it took you so long to to progress at the very beginning to you know towards getting the, the you know the the, late, I mean, the later end cars were a good you know 
25, 30 hour plus gameplay towards the back end. So you would very much in Voxel Astras and, um, you know, just MX Fizes, the, the kind of hairdresser cars as we know them today. Um, yeah, and they did. It is actually uh-huh. funny playing some oh, of yeah. Dreamcast now because, um, yeah. Just talk about old games, you know. Every time you'd switch and um, look at the next car, you'd, you know, would it be like a two second load off the disc? So you'd hear it go, ah, ah, and then <laughs> find the asset, bring it back into the screen. Um, it was kind of quaint, but it was just, yeah, it, it was one of those ones where it was. I know what, you, what you're saying, Carl, like it, it's not that, it's not the kudos that you think it really should be as your cover car, but yeah, it's, it's not a terrible car. Yeah. You must. I think you play Gran Turismo different to me because in Gran Turismo I'd buy an old banger and just soup the hell out of it until it was almost a, oh, basically yeah, but you can't a, do that you know, here, a, can you? <laughs> uh, uh, no, <laughs> but the, the fact what, that it had that is a Vauxhall like playing it. VX220 on the cover didn't bother me because I was used to driving a Nissan Sunny or something. In a I'd always Gran go to the clear. So. I own the clear at the time, so you know. I mean, I, I it, it, even in games. Even in games now, yeah, I, I adore playing as the, the family saloon. Or I, I might get as I might get as flash as a BMW, but I very seldom play sort of the Ferraris and stuff. But if you really well, want tell, to sell tell me, me the game, tell me then that point. Then what was the cover car for Gran Turismo at the time? Well, then yeah, it, there we it go. It had a curtain over it. <laughs> it had a car, <laughs> uh, but it could have been something really good under there, couldn't it? Did um, you? I thought the that first was the thing, one the had an, was there. I thought the first one had an NSX, NSX on its cover. Uh, I'm not. I, I know they had different region codes, uh, regional areas. The the second one had was it the tire tread and the, yeah. the scratch and yeah, sniff yeah, disc. Yeah, and, yeah, I remember the tire you know, tread. Yeah, and, and then the first the first one had like a silver curtain, I believe, or a purple curtain dangled over a car. Right. Um, at least the version I did, which I believe is the uh, the PAL PAL release of it. Um, if if the Japanese release had an NSX, that would make more sense. To, to be fair to it, though, you know, I, you know, I, I'm thinking of of racing games, you know, around that era. You know, Gran Turismo was the absolute daddy at that time. It, you know, it was it was a bloated mess for sure, but you know, it had a ton of stuff in there, and I think it was going to be very hard for any developer at that time period to to really challenge. And you know, you could argue that Forza now has done a a fairly bang up job of actually you know sticking it to 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 that series, but that series was an absolute powerhouse for sony mm. then um so you know the fact that it maybe didn't have quite the roster of cars that that you know the big sony title did um y- you know I, i'm willing to give it a, a little bit of a slack it did have a it did have a decent roster of cars though and it did advertise to this sort of night street racing mm-hmm. three years before need for speed yeah, underground uh, was even released so that that, very that much. was pretty interesting i would yeah. say the talker games were more of a close arrival to this anyway um yeah i mean we talk about Gran Turismo because that was the one they were aiming at but i think in spirit and no doubt due to the fact probably there's a lot of crossover between developers between codemasters and bizarre anyway um you know it was the Toka series bore a very striking sentiment. i mean the key difference with the Toka mm. games of course is you're in touring cars on tracks but other than that the handling and the modeling and everything else is very very similar um, oh, a beast of a game, and I mean, yeah. Toka Two was a fantastic game, and, and something that was heralded, and and there there is definitely a similarity in the way that those games handle, and in 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 terms of the structure, and I, I think that was probably a smart choice because why would you replicate or yeah. even start to replicate? I'm, 
and I guarantee uh, you, else. there were people at Bazaar who had worked for Codemasters and vice versa because these these these, oh, these guys absolutely. these guys all know each other, which is why when one of the racing studio folds, it, they all move into the other ones because they all time, know each other. Anyway. There so, and probably yeah, about five yeah. years after, there, there, there was many many races in the market, all competing for your your dollar now, and, and that's really yeah. subdued recently. You know, there's only two or three really big. I'd say franchises and and you know you don't really get those third party t- games now that kind of just proliferate that market. I think actually Rally seems to be good at, at picking up the odd. Um, the license must be fairly easiest to get. Yeah, yeah but um, yeah, back then there was a, a lot of, you know, now, a lot of um, the rally titles, titles you know, competing for your choices. Uh, uh, you know the races to be in your home. And I I remember actually you know say putting a, a whole load of time into MSR and thinking it was certainly a worthy game of that time, even though I had a lot of choice from many other competitors I you know I really felt that at the time it was it was a step above a lot of what I've played before um and it was a you know a different challenge so and and of course it did you know put its marker out it tried to be different it intentionally made wild changes to the formula for standard racing games I mean we've obviously mentioned Kudos mm-hmm. which is the biggest one um another one was the live console clock which <laughs> was an interesting surprise and something I wasn't aware of prior to playing it, which is that the internal clock on the Dreamcast would actually uh, have an impact on the time of day upon which races would happen. There were three locations, of course, being Japan, San Francisco and London. So if you're racing at 12 noon in, in London and your next race is on San Francisco, it's 4am and it's really dark, <laughs> like really, really dark. So it became quite problematic if you wanted to you know play that game and um as, as a child when i was playing msr it was usually on a morning on a saturday morning or something across the weekend <laughs> and it basically made the san francisco tracks unplayable for me until sort of late afternoon when it started to get a little bit lighter but it was it was again an interesting take or something that was not moved across to the pgr series full-time which i always found as a bit of a shame but um it it's something that was a little bit different about MSR. And I think that was always the goal, was that MSR, the intention was to stand out for many different reasons. And then that was sort of a, a unique one. I mean, were you, were you guys fond of the, the internal clock? Uh, it was a neat concept. I mean, for me, it was the opposite. I tended to play it in the evening, so Japan was always pitch black, but it had a yeah. bit more lighting on it. <laughs> so it wasn't quite so hard. <laughs> uh, it was interesting for me because I... I'd, only been to San Francisco for the first time about two months before this game came out so I remember being quite excited by the fact I could drive down some streets that I'd seen only a couple of months before and obviously I know London very well having grown up there so um, that aspect of it was kind of cool as well and I, I think also you know just talking about this game in particular for the Dreamcast but also this genre this is back in a time when um, racing games were really the first person shooters of uh, of, the, of this period because if you wanted to show off your console's prowess yeah. and graphical mm-hmm. fidelity it was racing games that you used to show it uh, because at the time you know there wasn't that a great deal of uh, first person shooters around um, they've become the tentpole thing these days but back then it was you had to have your graphic you know really cool looking almost as realistic as you could get racing game particularly like the replays had to look photo quality that was like the 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 big thing and so by sending it in real world locations it was actually a very brave move um because of course people know those places but they did a you know even looking at it today it doesn't look that detailed but it's they're recognizable you what? know those landmarks yeah. are totally recognizable and uh look decent you know for and for this is for a 16 year old game and that 
I felt May was had more an impression on me than the fact that you had this kind of time zone mechanic, although that was kind of neat. Uh, on on that point, so races of time periods, was there many doing it in realistic streets? I mean, obviously I can think of like, you know, the kind of tracks, kind of Tokyos and whatnot. Off. Not streets. So there was a, um, there was the San Francisco rush, was it? Uh, Mm-hmm. Um, which was a kind of stylized San Francisco, but um, mm. most of them would you, they would you get track ones, you know? So we talk about Toka, so that had some real tracks in it, um, obviously, uh, and obviously F three five five was just Suzuka, um, and that was you know beautifully rendered as well, you know. But um, no, I think to do what they did was highly unusual, uh, and was one, mm. and it's, of course that's the main that's one of the hooks for the game that's why it's called metropolis street racer is you are racing around known city locations yeah and i i even even now you know replaying it you know 16 years down the line there is actually that that sense that you are you know racing through streets you know there's a bit more kind of up and down kind of bumpiness to yeah so you know not quite curbs but you know you can pick out you know famous landmarks and and really use more probably more of your well, imagination about how it would be to drive through those, you know, those certainly for me, the London streets um, and driving through Tokyo was probably more of a, wow, this is must, must be what it would be like yeah. to drive through Tokyo. Certainly yeah. back, you know, I was 20 playing this game then. So um, yeah, but you only have to look at yeah, real world. If you look at Formula One, probably two of the best tracks in F1 are, 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 oh, yeah, are semi street circuits, you know, yeah. Canada and uh, Spa, mm-hmm. which half of those circuits are street circuits. And in fact, some of the newer ones recently, the newer street circuits, they are the most fun to watch. Um, like Singapore and and, and of course, and you've got Monte Carlo, which is an awful track yeah. to actually watch in terms of a, a of a race, but it's iconic because yeah. you're going through the streets and and there is a, there is a sense of immediacy when you're playing racing games through streets compared to tracks. There's a sense of everything quicker mm-hmm. in that moment. It's bizarrely, it's it's also it's also the fact you've got a combination of straights and ninety degree turns um, and often quick left yeah, rights, absolutely. which you know track designers around the world are paid millions of pounds to recreate but actually you could take any city centre location and make a pretty decent racetrack out of it just by saying okay go around these streets because as soon as you start introducing straights with uh, you know um, 90 degree bends following it you create the opportunity to 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 overtake Overtake. yeah (laughs) Yeah. Um, not not necessarily um, MSR related, but um, I do remember a friend of mine that I played a lot online with, um, and this was from Project Gotham. He had obviously raced through the London tracks for, for many years, and um, upon his first visit down to London, actually, to come see me, um, he was, you know, it was, he, he would kind of map himself around London through what he'd done through PGR, which was kind of a lovely thing. He was like, oh, I've driven past here. This is this roundabout where I'm, yeah, it's there. And it, he'd played PGR so much that he'd would literally kind of just followed the route of what he would know from PGI. It was, it was quite an interesting, unusual moment because, you know, I'd, I'd seen London from many angles, but hadn't really kind of thought about it in, in those games turns. And, yeah, they did a bang up job, actually, um, of representing um, certainly London as a city and some of those streets. Not, hundred percent perfect but you know, i think um, msr was a, a really good um you know first step in in kind of challenging that i would get to the conventional norm of there's your racetrack you know there's your formula and actually you know changing up a bit and, and making you know for people that have been to those cities just something different see i, um, I had no that, connection to london when i was playing it this is this is <laughs> this is where i differ from you two that yeah. To the three locations, I had nothing. The, f- the first I actually had of an interaction with someone, like like you said, Tony, with, you, with your friend mapping your way through, was um, in a later PGR game with Edinburgh as a, as a location. And we would discuss it 
you know, in, in that regard that, oh, I've been here and you go around and, and this kind of direction. And I imagine for something like London, the only other game that I remember trying to go into this detail, which was a little bit later, was The Getaway. That, that, had done, that had tried to do London, <laughs> mm-hmm. and obviously that was on the PlayStation 2 some uh, some years later. But I think prior to, to Metropolis Street Racer, at least undertaking an attempt to do realistic cities um, and not just sample pieces, such as you know a Golden Gate Bridge and saying, this is based around San Francisco when nothing else matches. Um, I, I, don't, I don't really recall anything else off the top of my head doing it before MSR. And I am... Um, well- no, as I say, and it's it's really weird the the way they actually set up um, the game in in its entirety, in the way that essentially you have three locations, and you have um, one massive track that could take you around essentially the perimeter of that location, and then out of the way they they kind of segregate it up to give you more tracks is they just start putting barriers up and saying, oh, instead of going along this straight, now you can turn you have to turn right and we'll take you through a slightly different part of the street here and essentially you might join back onto that bit you known before or not. Um, but that was good or bad because you, you got to... Like, there were certain elements that they would always add so you'd know certain straightaways which, you know, you'd become really familiar with. Other sections of the city they would use, you know, sparingly um, but they would still come up from now and you know, every now and again. So you got to know the kind of understanding of the track layout, the track design. Um but by doing that, there was also quite a bit of um, a repetitive nature to it. Um, once you understood the way they laid it out, it was like, okay, here, yeah, here we are. And it, it felt like they needed more more tracks, more locations, and just a little bit more variety. And I guess I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? Setting it in three separate cities and then focusing on that, you know, you are then limited with, instead of like a dozen 20 tracks you are limiting yourself down to just you know um the location itself and back to the 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 clock design as well i I found myself certain races towards the back end of the game were all but impossible to do in in nighttime because it made the game harder It, it legitimately made the game harder because you couldn't see where you were essentially going at all times um so i did the heinous crime of you know, manually altering my Dreamcast clock <laughs> and just making you know, the the tracks that I needed to be daytime, daytime. Um, I, I I think that's kind of fun. It's, it's kind of games don't necessarily really mess around too much with it now. But was it one of the Project Gotham Racing games where if it was raining in your location, it would rain in the game? Was I making that up? I'm sure I've played I, a game I, where I that is the case. It, and I like the idea original of that. intention um, was for that to happen, and it, it didn't maybe? make it in uh, in the end, okay. or at least it was some generalised idea, but it, it wasn't sort of real time. Um, I believe I believe it was a later PGR title, and um, th- this game, due to the technology, and you know, we're talking about a game now that's 16 years old. We've mm. we've mentioned that there were problems driving at night, and that is that it renders everything far too dark. Um, Japan mm-hmm. is a little bit better because it's so lit regardless city lights um, yeah. but during the day it was also a little bit washed out so you, you had that balance between being a little washed out or too dark to play so it was pick your poison in, in that regard but this, we mentioned the design and it was something that when this game was being rewritten the artists really wanted to flex their muscles make something different and over 40,000 photos were taken uh, in the three cities uh, purely as reference and for textures and so forth, which is, I mean, I went to university in 
2003 till 2007 studying games design doing exactly this and we wouldn't come close to those numbers like those, those are astronomical numbers for the year 2000 for getting references for textures um and i think it's something that definitely shows uh gary mentioned that you look at it now and it's it's a little bit off a little bit not right but you you still think well that is impressive for a game that's you know closer to being two decades old <laughs> than it is new um mm. And I think that's something that was always impressive, and it certainly became the hallmark of the later Bizarre games, where there was always, uh, with uh, certainly with PGR two and three, there was what's the unveiling of the new city, what's going to be the you know that new impact, and I think with MSR we'd see nothing like that. That we can actually drive around London. It was it was incredible, and it would so that was the backing of the entirety of the advertising campaign in print magazines. There was just London everywhere. That that skyline with Parliament and, and Big Ben and whatnot. It was uh, just mind blowing. Mm-hmm. So we mentioned that the progress could be a little bit limited, and this went as far as the game having local multiplayer that you could not play unless you progressed in single player. Um, and the single player was made up of 25 chapters and 10 challenges per chapter for a total of 250 events, which is an astronomical amount of events when you're essentially locking your multiplayer behind it. Um, widely criticised as a result and certainly something that counted against it for me because I would regularly play Gran Turismo against my friend Um across numerous tracks on split screen. I mean, can you remember split screen, guys? It was a thing. Um, And to not be able to do it in this, at least for a long period of time, was was terrible. I mean, were either of you big local multiplayer racing game fans? That's all I did. (laughs) (laughs) So it definitely counted against you then, uh, unless unless you got your single-player progress going. No, I can remember that being one of the frustrations. I I don't, you know, I, I never got all the tracks unlocked. And I can remember having to, like I said to earlier, just sort of grind. I remember the grinding, trying to just to unlock a few more tracks so I could have like a selection on uh, on each. I, th- I, you know, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I probably only unlocked about I don't know twenty or thirty tracks at the most, something like that, because it just was too much. Yeah, well, the one trick that you you could use, and and yeah, I. I abuse the system a little bit is there's certain races where it was all about um collecting kudos um and they actually gave you pretty much an infinite time limit to do that um so you could if you knew what you were doing you could kind of just find the certain overtaking bends. one because i seem to remember that was ridiculously easy compared oh, to the yeah. others there, so, there, so there were certain kudos challenges that were really hard and there were certain kudos challenges that of course were really easy um i i'm certainly i remember but there being some where there was no you know, necessarily a time limit so you could actually just take advantage of that rack up some fairly big kudos totals and then bank that so you could unlock the, you know the next couple of chapters at the very least to give yourself a selection because you, you could find yourself coming up against a brick wall not being able to do something in its entirety and then kind of it being a game break unless you'd go back and grind and you know that's kind of weird to say within a, a racing game but you know not for other games in you know in different genres but in in particular a racing game to kind of come up to a brick wall and and not really know where to go and then have to go back to earlier races that essentially you've 
completed and, and beaten and you know got what you needed from them just to unlock the next section so you know, i remember in particular going back to a few areas you know grinding out kudos just to unlock something so i could progress and then maybe come back to later challenges maybe with a better car or, or something like that um also a, a neat little thing they they had where you they had what they call joker cards um and you know they could be used for a number of things but one in particular was you could double your kudos amount from the end total so you could go off get a very high kudos amount double it up um you did you get joker cards like every five races or something like that it, they wouldn't give me out that often but uh, yeah he, doing a couple you of certainly challenges. couldn't use one every race and it also no, came it was, with the um it would count against that once you'd used a joker card on an event that joker card was wiped and if you replayed the event you would then only get half the kudos that you originally yeah. had and you would end up losing kudos which sort of locked you back out of events once you'd passed it with a joker card which is a little bit strange but but equally yeah once again it's it's odd to talk about a racing game where you know these kind of elements play into you know into your progression system it it, it was always mostly about you know win a race move on to the next one or just unlock the next set of cars and and do as you wish it was always about unlocking cars and this, this was no different it's just put it behind a, an artificial barrier which uh, at the time was seemingly quite unusual to get but um, I, i'd certainly worked out to kind of mess with the system um and and you know unlock sections to myself i never got the chance to play this in multiplayer I'd, I'd, you know being 20 I'd, i remember why i played this so much now is when i this is the moment i moved in with my uh my wife now um but it was with her parents at that time we were just like you're moving in there for a year before we started you know working out what we were going to do and, and move away from them so um you know it was essentially you know, watch stargate sg1 on tv non-stop or play um, MSR, so I think that's probably why I had so much time in the world to play that. Um, although Stargate's not a bad TV program. So the game, as well as having 250 events, used a variety of different formats. Um, this this is where certain modes would be a lot more difficult for certain gamers. Um, and of course, this isn't this is nothing new. Many games now come with many modes, but these featured the hot lap which is exactly what it sounds. It's a time trial where you mm-hmm. must beat a certain lap time. Um, that came with two different formats. It came with one where you were given several laps to beat a certain time, or another way you have to get an average lap time across all the laps. Um, you had the timed run, which is a case of beating all laps within a certain time, but it features traffic. You have the challenge mode, which is various challenges such as overtaking a certain number of cars, setting a top speed, or lapping an opponent on a very short track within a very certain time. Uh, one-on-one, which is probably the most common type of uh, of race from other racing games, which is just you versus one other opponent. Um, you can set a head start time for your opponent, or give yourself one. This is where it varies on the amount of kudos that you could earn, and you could increase the challenge for yourself, especially if you utilise the joker cards. You have the street race, which was you versus five opponents. There was only six cars to a race. And the championship series, which was a series of two to five street races with a medal awarded for the overall performance from each race. Um, the events, the chapters, um, were made up of a variation of these and usually ended in a championship. Now, um when it was just you versus the five opponents, they tended to be quite simple, but the ones where you had to beat very specific times whilst earning kudos amounts, those were the ones to drive a sane man mad. 
do mm-hmm. do any of you guys remember any particularly stories of maybe controller throwing, which was a, a particular favorite of mine at no, the time? Because I, I'm sure Gary will agree with me. Unfortunately, these are the kind of challenges which um, appeared a lot in pre- PGR, the, the series thereafter, and. I think the stuff that's stuck in my head is trying to fit around cones yeah. over a, you know, a number of times, clipping a cone, losing a huge amount of CUDA score at the very end and just, you know, not necessarily crying, but you know, just being very upset. And I'm, I'm not sure whether that's in MSR or in PGR, but I remember cones in particular being an absolute bugbear for me and Kudos systems. I don't think that was in MSR. I think that was something they introduced in PGR. Probably not. I can remember, I said earlier, the overtaking ones were ridiculously easy. I do remember that. Mm-hmm. I used to be able to exceed the you know, the, the, the gold yeah. medal without any problems because you just went round and round in circles. And I seem to remember the one-on-ones were the ones that were really difficult um, because if you made one mistake, that was it. You, it was impossible for you to win. Yeah. Um, and the, the, it also came with that balance system, didn't it, where you could give yourself... The, the head start but you're never going to get gold no so you you basically got roughly about two seconds I believe it was if you gave them a two second head start that was roughly the time that you would need to be for a gold rem- yeah so I remember in, in the ones where you had to stay ahead of them that I would get ahead of them then literally just troll them and try not yeah. let them overtake me just yeah. be like ri- and ridiculous but you know enjoyable enough where you would kind of let them rub into your bumper and just push you to the end of the line um but it was hard enough trying to get in front of them before they they allowed you to do that I mean, that was uh, the tricky part but like in all these systems they, they put a barrier up you, you're going to try to kind of work whatever the system allows you but yeah it was never really a one-on-one race from my point it was kind of like just knock them off the track to get in front of them so the game also came with an element of online functionality now this isn't the sort of connect and play multiplayer racing that we've become accustomed to but the dreamcast also offered us a real insight into online features for the first time so um as with anything it came with some stipulations uh by default there was only two real options you had the time trial which was a specific car course and weather which is likely what Gary played at the NEC when the game was showcased um and that was ghosts were saved within the trial themselves which you could then put on a VMU file and be passed on to others. Um, Or the speed challenge time attacks on set courses from each city, but these could only be raced in the now infamous Vauxhall VX220 horrible, (laughs) cheap Lotus. Um, And you were also restricted to automatic gears. The times were then uploaded to the online ranking system within the Dream Arena. Uh, however, if you were a registered member of Dream Arena or SegaNet, you could access an MSR micro site which featured more online features, uh, where you had the speed challenge ranking, where you would enter a best time for each course, a world time trial, which was the top 10 best lap records for each course, players competed by uploading their time trial fig- uh, files, and then they could be downloaded by others. I remember trying this one in particular, realizing I was about 40 seconds shy on an incredible <laughs> lap of these top times and thinking that's not for me that, that is just ridiculous someone's cheating um the world kudos ranking which was the same but for the highest kudos scores and then the ghost attack which was preset ghost cars from various courses to compete against did any of you guys actually utilize the online features of this game um I was certainly uh, I had a Dream uh, Arena account, so I probably would have done. I don't remember. I can remember accessing high score tables and things like that, but um, 
as I don't really pay too much attention to that sort of thing. But my Dreamcast was was hooked up. Um, you know, it was on online, so I did use it for some stuff. I mean, I used to play Quake online with it, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, so I almost certainly did use it, but it didn't leave an impression. Tony, uh, this would have been at a point though where I I wasn't playing any of that stuff online. I, w- I would eventually uh, get online and play Quake and and all that, but at, at the time period, no, it was a uh, it was a step too far to be using my uh, my mother in law's internet. Uh, you know, <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> you've got to hugging. be careful. Hogging the line um, to dial into to, to Dream Arena, which was yeah, yeah. Just, but once again, though, it's, I mean, it's a it's a good reminder for for people that are you know of a, a younger age than, than us fellows that you know the you know you talk about online features and and yeah, this was interesting. You know, the online leaderboards, you know, people to play against, well, people to you know set your times against across the world. You know, it's it's a probably a, a you know, big deal, and I'm not too sure what else was was doing it back then, but you know, it was um, you know a, a a little insight to what we would be experiencing many years down the line. Of course, we're we're far beyond just leaderboards now. If a game came out that you know, we, well, we all complain, isn't it? A game comes out now and it doesn't have some sort of online component where you can, you know, little local yeah. local multiplayer only. And it's like, well, why couldn't they put the time and effort into it? It's a lot more complex than that, and it always is. But yeah, this is uh, an insight to where we were then. But no, it's not features that I I used in particular. Of course, online features weren't really commonly experienced on console games until Microsoft made it a requirement yeah. for the Xbox 360, which really isn't as far back as you, you might expect. Um, there were some Dreamcast games that you that you would play. Quake was probably the prime example of it, but this this is something that had been happening on PC for quite Fantasy a while Star at this Online point. As well. Yeah, Rocket. I mean, Fantasy Star Online. Mm. Where, which, of course, you only got Choo Choo Rocket if you actually signed up an account and then claimed the game, which was a way to sign people onto the Dream Arena system. And, and that's, I think that was the encouragement that finally pushed me over the edge to sort of sign on there. And when I was, I would check, as I said, I, I, in my head, I was like, I'll beat these top times, no problem, I'll give them a test. And then you realise that there's just some people that are just better, <laughs> unless you put all the hours in a day. Um, but I remember being blown away that there was so much there. Obviously, there was only the two by default, but if you had a registered account, there was there was far more um, behind that wall, and it, it was definitely a sign of things to come with later consoles. Uh, mm-hmm. But it was also something that when I was playing games on the PlayStation 2, I remember being shocked that it wasn't there by default when I could get these things on the Dreamcast. So it, to use an, an, a horrific cliche, there was that sort of pushing of the boundaries of of things that could be experienced and and further additions. It obviously didn't come with a patching system, which we know, um, which is why we had reissues of discs. But regardless, it, it, it was impressive that everything had a tiered out system from kudos to time trials to one-on-one races to um, speed challenges, which would be issued by Bizarre Creations themselves utilizing the the Vauxhall, I always thought that that added a little bit of longevity, which seems crazy for a game with 250 events anyway, but, you know, it was pretty cool regardless. Um, The the game also came with a licensed soundtrack, which uh, had started to become probably more prevalent with Gran Turismo 2, um, where the legitimate... British bands and, and so forth were being signed up. This had a very dance-heavy soundtrack, but I think the thing that probably stands out most, and having done some research, I couldn't come across another 
that had a radio style implementation to how tracks were delivered and that is with the ability to skip between stations and having a live narration on there by a radio presenter to link tracks something that Forza Horizon is now very famous for doing um it had tracks that were linked per location so you would hear music that would only be in Japan or only in uh, San Francisco of course only in London um and I remember probably Planet Perfectos uh, Bullet in My Gun which I absolutely loved that track I was ridiculously into that that dance um st- and trance style era of music and the fact that that was in the game absolutely blew me away and I found it utterly sensational that there was this radio in there and I I'd not experienced anything like it and as I said with some research I don't think anyone had um, do you guys have any recollections of, of this and being surprised by it um, well it's a genre of music I quite like as well and uh, I was very much into uh probably 10 well the 10 years pre- preceding this so um so yeah I, I mean lots of the tracks in it i actually already owned i've got a ridiculously large music collection um so yeah but i, I do remember the radio thing being cool as well uh the fact that you could choose stations now i can't remember was msr the one the first one to have the uh classic classical station as well i think that may have been pgr but uh they even did that you know that was a kind of a neat touch um to provide a bit of a variety in it um and of, and of course, cheap because classical music is cheap without licensing fees. Well, yeah. Only the orchestra, yeah. Um, well, yeah, you, you better pay them. It, it even had that thing where you went for a, a tunnel and your radio was slightly distorted to get slightly fuzzy mm-hmm. sound. Yeah. Um, until you come back out the other side. Yeah, elements of you know, more realism um, and cheeky fun. I, and I believe you could put your own um, CD in the drive of this one and actually run that couldn't you or can you do something i'm pretty sure you could run that your own tracks sounds familiar I, I would have to check but yeah that's i seem to remember because certainly you could, the dreamcast was capable of doing that so that sounds like something mm-hmm. that they yeah. would do i'm sure i tried doing that in fact now you've mentioned yeah. it i do remember trying to do it so yeah i think it did <laughs> um i do yeah. recall a, a completely off tangent but i will i will say this because i'm just remembered it i remember when my first experience starting up this game was where you could change the name on your number yes. plate um yeah and being really like quite smitten with that i don't think i'd seen that anywhere else so, like the entire time i'd running around with just i can't remember maybe maybe it was tony i can't remember what it, it certainly wasn't ghost world at that point or anything that it was a later tag but yeah i just remember being wow look <laughs> there's part of you know um, me kind of in that game and I think that like, adding your own soundtracks and having the radio stations just made it a little bit more maybe more personal hmm. and of course the Dreamcast was capable of opening the drive and, and keeping stuff running because yeah. that's essentially how the piracy of it worked yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so Oops. yeah it's probably something that would have been done a little bit differently <laughs> um, so with, with all this MSR certainly brought a lot of new things to the table for racing games and I, I think it's only putting the show notes together that I've recalled just how much is new um, and, and how much has influenced other titles so the real tracks the, the night and day style of races the radio presentation um, it, it's pretty incredible that a game that was a commercial flop was was you know 
responsible for what we see influenced influencing so many other titles. And of course, they went on to do the Project Gotham Racing title. So Martin Chudley said of this, at the time, Microsoft were making noises about the launch of Xbox. And we approached them to see if they would be interested in an open wheel racing game that we had an inkling of a design for. However, they seemed far more impressed with the game that we just released. And as we had the rights for everything bar the name, Project, uh, Project Gotham Racing was born from the ashes. A year later, and with the inclusion of New York as a fourth city, it went on to sell over 2 million units. Finally, we had our launch game on a new piece of hardware. So, I'm assuming that the game that they wanted to make was along the lines of Midtown Madness. Uh, Microsoft already having Midtown Madness, thought that they could you know, back up the plan or the intention of what was MSR, and that is how we ended up with the successful PGR franchise. So, it's pretty great that the effort that was put into creating something like MSR wasn't wasted, which, you know, we've seen with other franchises where you would only sell a measly amount of copies, in this case 120,000, only to never see a sequel. So to go from 120,000 on a new piece of hardware to over 2 million on a new piece of hardware is quite the success story, and it certainly makes me very happy as a lover of the Bizarre Creations games. Well, they were also very lucky in that <clears throat> Xbox at the time were going around snapping up Dreamcast Studios because yeah. there were lots of because the Dreamcast uh, was a used a common uh, Windows framework to the Xbox, and with the Dreamcast being killed off that quickly, there are lots of studios with not much to do, and so uh, and who had released you know quality titles. I mean, the, the Dreamcast was so innovative, you know, and I think that was it became. You know, during its short life, well, Peter Moore as well yeah. kind of linked the <clears throat> Indeed. two. So. And, it, and during its short life, uh, lots of new IPs were uh, birthed on the Dreamcast, either in games that mm-hmm. then went on to have sequels on other platforms, or ideas that were first seeded on the Dreamcast because of the innovative te- ton- technology they were using in that system. Which then, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, when Microsoft knew they were going to bring out an online console which is what the xbox was always designed to be although it wasn't at launch they knew that they had a studio here that had already done stuff with a racing game online so it was there ready to go and they'd done the same with several other um games as uh, well the, the issue of the dreamcast in mind wasn't anything to do with its games catalog i mean look at just this amazing stuff on, on the dreamcast for its relatively short lifespan it was always about sega and, and its backing and, and not being able to to financially afford um, to be in that market and yeah so the the studios that are around i mean jet set radio and whatnot um you know there's there's a whole ton of stuff that came out of that and ended up on the xbox platform and it was you know nice to see that somebody actually just you know had belief in in you know the concept of what the dreamcast was even if they didn't have the clout to to, to make it a success um yeah so that you know, the msr was obviously a, a birth of that and, and it's good to see that microsoft saw it as as what it was rather than kind of shoehorning them into a, a different idea so you know they, they got to complete that journey and they took that journey for how, what four titles over five. a number of years well, wasn't it With PGR, PGR, <clears throat> blue, if you can count blue it's five isn't it so okay did we count blue? <laughs> i think <laughs> we try not to. PGR <laughs> blended with Wipeout, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, it's. Yeah. yeah. I mean, essentially, it was. It was part of that lineage. Not not to be upset. I think the, the Activision transition didn't quite work out quite as well. No, I mean, that, that, that hey. was a, a dark time. I actually had a friend who was at Bizarre Creations at the time of that takeover, and it did not go swimmingly. Um, 
yeah, he he wasn't there for much longer. Put it that way. Um, um, it was all. Uh, it, it was essentially a wrap up. It, they, they bought the studio out. Um, take the top talent, wrap the studio in. Um, it, it's something that happens, and it's something we've become accustomed to. So, yeah, certainly. Yeah, certainly now. Um, that being said, um, what do you think was the, the kind of the reason for the failure of MSR as a, a game? There, I mean, if if we were to believe those were the sale figures, and knowing that PGR would go on to to be a kind of a blockbuster franchise within itself, was the appetite? For at you know, in two thousand, just not right for a game like that. Was the marketing wrong? People, was it? Who, whose fault I think was people, it? People, as Carl said earlier, I think people had given up on the Dreamcast by that point. I mean, it was discontinued only a few months later. So, yeah. Um, I certainly know. I mean, this was. I think um, when I was checking pre-show, I think Shenmue came out the same week as MSR, um, and Shenmue didn't do very well either. Um, you know, and I, th- I think a lot of those games that came out in that last little period just were sent out to die. I, I, I don't think um, Sega marketed it particularly well either. Uh, I think there was there was more coverage in the UK because it was a UK studio and it was a yeah. cool story and stuff. And you know, we read Edge, and so that's how we all knew about it. But I think outside of that, I don't think anyone had heard of it or knew what it was. Uh, I mean, I get the, the story I told you about the um, the motor show. I mean, there were two kiosks there, and nobody was touching them. They were just walking past. You know, they, there was no interest because they didn't recognise the name. That's it. The, the Dreamcast. The, I mean, Sega tried. They obviously had a huge sponsorship deal with Arsenal Football Club to have them on the, you know, branding on the front of the shirts, and th- there was a real intention to push the Dreamcast and. I think ultimately it was just a case that the PlayStation 1 was so big and it was such a cultural shift. Um, you know, that was that was primarily the time when consoles were starting to make their way into the living room. They started to become sort of family gaming consoles. And it was that brand connection that the PlayStation 2 was coming. We knew it was coming out. It had been announced. And people weren't exactly, you know, going in droves to go and pick up this this Dreamcast console, the, the Saturn had faded away against the PlayStation, and it, if you were only buying one machine, as we probably saw with the uh, with the Xbox One and the, and the PlayStation Four, a lot of people will only stick with one console for a long time, and then maybe pick up the second. And the, the the Dreamcast was in its dying days by the time that people may have even contemplated picking up a Dreamcast. So it's just more of an attitude, but even if the, the, the consoles were in, you know, within the hands of people by that time, people's mindset was already on something else. And they, you know, yeah. I remember it, I was, I was super happy to be playing my Dreamcast at that point. I was super happy to be playing that game. So I guess it's hard for me to, to get in the mindset of that, but yeah. Um, and we, as, as we talked about other games sold, I wouldn't say gangbusters, but sold more than, MSR did so. Yeah. I just wondered what you know, what the general attitude of the appetite of the customer just well, wasn't for this game, knowing that essentially that PGR would go on to be a, a you know. A, a I success. think there's probably a, a modern equivalent of this as well in Fast Racing Neo on the Wii U, which I bet neither of you have played. Nope. There you go. Which <laughs> is honest, a fantastic. No. Well, it's it's a superb uh, futuristic racing game in the kind of. Um, F Zero Wipeout F-Zero mold. Wipeout it's style, absolutely yeah. stunning. It came out on the Dreamcast about, oh, sorry, not Dreamcast, the Wii U about nine months ago. <laughs> it's just had a recently. It's had a big content update with some extra tracks and that. I bet that probably sold one hundred and twenty thousand copies as well. 
you know basically because it's mm. on a platform that's that's, that's dying um, and so you're only really going to get enthusiasts who know about it who are actually going to pick it up uh, and yeah. this was the same it, it, it's when people have sort of moved on in mind to the to the next wave it, it's hard and, and microsoft were the new kids on the block they were piling money into this machine it was new powerful very different and when bizarre could come on with their own ip with uh, pgr it's not surprising that that would go on to sell a huge amount of copies in comparison because people were snapping up content on this new machine that that was going to legitimately challenge the PlayStation. And the case for the Dreamcast was it was 18 months down the line. It was already fading away. And, you know, people can't be expected to go and stick around for the last great games. We always see with every console great games released at the end that don't true, get picked yeah. up. Uh, you know, we've we've covered enough on in, on Kane and Rince over the five <laughs> years that... <clears throat> It, it's come out right at the end of the PlayStation 2 when the PlayStation 3 took over or PlayStation 3 and the PlayStation 4's out. It doesn't mean that it's not a great game or that it's a gem or whatnot, but again, only the enthusiasts are the ones that get it. And as a result, they need to be the voices to be heard, <laughs> which is why you get so many people um, that are vehement defendists of the Dreamcast console and they love it. And it's, it is a real cult classic of a console as a result. And, and I mean, I am absolutely a defender of that machine and I very fondly remember it even though it's probably the shortest life cycle of any console that I've had as an adult or a child. So it, it it's just a shame, and MSI was unfortunately the game that was caught in the crossfire, but the potential was seen, and thankfully, you know, back in the days when you would move systems and it wouldn't just be a remaster, it, we got a whole new sort of franchise built on the foundations that were created, and I, and I think... PGR benefited from you can almost see MSR as a kind of test run, a real test bed of features and implementation um, and when it was put on a wider market with, with a higher scope for sale, it succeeded I bet it's legacy <laughs> uh, that is absolutely is its <laughs> legacy so we'll get some word back from our community uh, where you can reach us at canonrince.com forward slash forum or you can email us at podcast at canonrince.com we do really enjoy the feedback that we're given from our um, regular listeners new listeners um, and whilst it may not always feature on the show it can be seen on the forum um, we will include it if we possibly can and with this we've got a piece of feedback from a regular listener of ours uh, in delby 2k who actually left this feedback a year ago so this has been a long time coming for this show, but thankfully with the game being 16 years old, I don't think his points will have changed. So Delby2K said, This was the game that kicked off my PGR addiction. Previously, my racing had either involved serious sims or real loca air locations or arcade handling that accentuated sideways traversal at the expense of time. It seemed that the two would never meet in a satisfactory way, never find a way to bring them both together. MSR was that marriage, that collection of style and speed where the recreations of San Francisco, London and Tokyo felt real to me at the time. Driving as fast as I could around those streets, trying to mix up my kudos points whilst winning races or completing challenges was just exhilarating and I spent hours upon hours trying to find ways to shave seconds off my time or earn those few extra style points. 
There had been nothing like this in my gaming racing life up until this point, and alongside Sega Rally, this is the game I credit for starting my polygonal automotive obsession. It was just me against myself. No leaderboards, online racing, nothing like that. Sure, the functionality was available, but all I wanted to do was drive my Fiat around Fisherman's Wharf as fast as possible each night. The best driving games make you want to get better at them purely because speed and skill is all you want to improve. MSR and Pidgeotto instilled that desire in me. I kept playing because I needed to be faster, better and more skillful at this game and I could not stop playing. This meant that I could look over the tons of flaws including the cut features and the bugs because I just wanted to keep playing. MSR had huge ambition at the time that caused a ton of problems I was lucky enough not to run into. MSR is one of the fondest memories of my formative gaming years, and no doubt going back to it now would rekindle all those fantastic memories again. And I can see where Delby 2K is coming from, and having played several racing games with him in the past, I know he is a huge fan of the racing game, so if this and Sega Rally are the ones that kicked off his polygonal racing you know, follies, then all the credit to it, it must be really fun to him. Um, We also ask for three-word reviews um, to add into the podcast. We request these on Twitter, which you can reach us at Kane and Rince. Um, Unfortunately for this one, we only received three. However, they're three fairly good ones. Well, he did only sell 120,000 copies. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, this this is very true. So three is probably a lot. So well, well done, well done, guys. Was there um, only eleven thousand in the UK? So, so like, you know, we're actually not doing too badly. Mm. So um, that's one for each of us, and we'll start with Tony. <laughs> uh, Dan Clark says Chinese buffets everywhere. Chase V eight or four said need more kudos. And Snaky David said Proto Project Gotham. Yeah. Um, Dan Clark was originally scheduled to join us on this show and unfortunately couldn't make it. Um, I'm sure he would have had plenty to say as our mm-hmm. regular Sega fan on the shows. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, at the time of recording, he wasn't very well. So unfortunately, didn't make it on. So with that, we'll wrap up our own summaries on 2000's MSR. And we'll start with Tony. Yeah, it's, it's hard for me to say this the footnote of PGR um, because we like to look at the games as very individual things in particular and, and that's what we've done with MSI. We've, we felt that you know if we were to ever want to cover um, Project Gotham Racing in the future, it would be nice to have that uh, you know first look at a game that you know kind of kickstarted it all, but give it its its due and make sure it was you know had you know had a podcast of its own and and we've done that and I'm sure we will one day get round to covering Project Gotham Racing series um, because it's a fascinating series to talk about in its own right, um, but that's that's what I think. Um, MSR is it's it is a footnote in a better series to follow. Um, its core ideas are, are super, super. You know the the CUDA system is really interesting, and I do think it you know for a, for a game that you know in two thousand it looked fantastic, it sounded fantastic, it had a bunch of really good ideas, um, and it certainly played fantastically as well. Going back to it now, obviously there's issues that it's it's quite hard to you know to get your head around or I guess excited for because you know there's many other games that have uh, perfected the ideas that they had Im- implemented but um I remember you know if I go back to my 20 year old self um 
spending a, a lot of time and you know going back to that save file which I have and, and realizing the amount of hours that I clearly pumped into the game and absolutely loved playing it and have fun memories of sitting there and you know trying to perfect the the courses etc so I think certainly now it's it, it doesn't necessarily hold up as, as great as the kind of rose tinted specs but um it was a really good game at the time and um you know if nothing else it we should be thankful it spawned um the project off racing series or at least taught them a number of lessons which they needed to to continue into maybe the better series and that's not a trying to do a disservice to to you know their attempt on the dreamcast is i think probably just a, a realistic take of where they would end up going as a company yeah it, it's it does seem a shame to label it as the footnote to the PGR series. And uh, unfortunately, I think that will always be its legacy. Mm. But hopefully we've shed some light on why it probably deserves a little bit more credit than that. You know, we, we've talked about the real world cities, um, the, the implementation of three full locations with many different routes, uh, a radio soundtrack um style presentation which many may associate with grand theft auto or the forza horizon series etc this this was doing it at the turn of the millennium and um a whole new way of racing um for point implementation 250 events uh a day and night time um weather effects Online features, I mean, MSR really did sort of set a yardstick for so many other games to, to sort of at, at least attempt to better or at least match the feature set. Um, and unfortunately, in only selling 120,000 copies, I think many people may not be aware of just how much MSR perhaps changed the face of racing games um, in this style for the for the you know the arcade street based uh, racers, and you, you look back on it and yes, it's aged. Everything's aged. You know, three D games age worse than two D games, and so on and so forth. But there's still an element of charm there. It may not handle the best. It, the frame rate dips. The the sound isn't always incredibly tight, but the memories are always so strong and you know mm-hmm. I, I go back and I play this and I, I have that goofy grin on my face and I'm back to being 16 years old and at college and and all the events that were going on in my life and and you know it, it brings back those memories those thoughts and I, you know, I'm thankful for when we record shows like this and it allows me you know an avenue to think of what I was doing at that time, and, and also to re- refresh upon what a game was offering. And I, th- I think that regardless of where gaming goes, we can look at MSR as uh, an origin story in two ways, one to the PGR series and one to the gaming features that we you know, love, appreciate, and actually expect from so many others from this point on. And for that, I'm, I'm always happy you know, to to have said that I was a fan of Bizarre Creations, arguably, you know, Britain's greatest ever racing game studio, and this was probably the point that it changed for them more than ever, even more than the F1 series could have ever done it for them. Um, And and thankfully we did get PGR as as a result, which 
for anyone who knows me, is a very important racing series in my life, especially a certain number, which I rate above all other racing games. So going back and experiencing MSR again has been somewhat of a, an enlightening revelation for me. Um, so that that has been absolutely fantastic, and for that it will always have a legacy. And Gary, what are your thoughts on it? Well, I I, I think you've covered uh, most of the points. I mean, what I would say is that uh, every so often in this genre, uh, a game comes along which kind of, whilst it might not be a success in its own right, it then ends up creating something or spawns an idea which then becomes something that is then inherent in many games that follow uh, and i think of things like um lotus esprit turbo challenge um colin mccray yes. rally uh, and i would add metropolis street racer to that list in that the thing that those those all these games did was a ri- well, it was you know in terms of the racing genre is it created an original concept or in the case of uh, MSR, a number of concepts, which would then become the framework for not only its successor, but many other successors that have followed. And if you're making a mm. a, a medium realistic arcade racing game these days, then you'll always look to uh, MSR and the PGR series that it spawns as your kind of benchmark as to where you're going to take it and when we when we talk about the Forza Horizons or the Drive Clubs or whatever it is that we've had in recent years everything all of those games you can trace back to MSR in in terms of uh, their design ethos um, and the way that they play and the feeling as the as a player you get from them and I think that's quite rare in the genre as I said you know there's a few you know obviously Gran Turismo being a, another biggie but it's it's in there and I don't think it's a game you should really go back and, well, unless you're uh, super interested having heard us talk about it. It's not a game I would, I would suggest you go and seek out and, and play no. now. I think if you want to do that, then you go for the... I would say go and PGR2 would be the one to, to go and look at. But <laughs> but I think it is, it, is in, it is an important game, and I'm glad that you guys have uh, given it its airtime, uh, particularly as it wasn't obviously that popular. <laughs> <laughs> That's never stopped us. <laughs> Um, so that's for me, uh, Carl Moon, your host on this episode, to thank both Tony and Gary for joining me for this recording. Thank you very much. And with that, next time in issue 248, we ribbon shoot our way through shiny entertainment MDK in a bid to stop the mine crawlers. <laughs>